It's Thursday, January 25th. We know where GOP voters stand, but what about the rest of the country? We start here. President Biden readies for an election fight this November. They are officially in general election mode. Why Democrats want Biden to square off with Donald Trump. The U.S. plays a game of whack-a-mole with militants in the Red Sea. It is highly possible that the war can spill over and to the other parts of the region. Iran's foreign minister is warning the U.S. of a wider regional war. And a scientific breakthrough for children who are born deaf. Gene therapy is helping some kids hear for the first time. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Ann Flaherty. Good morning. Brad's out today, but I've got you covered in the meantime. So this week, I think it's safe to say that much of the nation has been focused on a single question when it comes to U.S. politics. Who do Republican voters want to see on the ballot this November? The answer, it seems, is Donald Trump, at least after GOP voters in New Hampshire rallied around him as the next candidate. Of course, Nikki Haley says the race is not over yet, but all of this is obviously just half of the equation by November. The other half is President Joe Biden and how he sees 2024. To catch us up to speed on what the Biden campaign is up to, let's bring in ABC White House correspondent Karen Travers. Karen, what was the reaction from the Biden campaign on Donald Trump winning in New Hampshire? It's game on. That was their reaction, that now this is real and it is all hands on deck. And and it's the general election. They are officially in general election mode. The president put out a statement on Tuesday night after the results were in in New Hampshire. And he said it is now clear that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And it was also notable in that statement that he made an appeal to independents and Republicans who he said might not like what they're hearing and seeing from Donald Trump join us on the other side. That's what he's going to have to do over the next 10 months to try and win the election. You know, make those pitches to the people in the middle while also saying uh, to people who are very deeply unsure about this race right now, they might not like what Joe Biden has done, but they are very worried about another Trump presidency. And so this is it almost seems like this is the rematch that President Biden wanted. I mean, does it is it helpful to move Nikki Haley out of the way because she is more popular with moderates? I look back and when President Biden announced his reelection, he was asked by our colleague Mary Bruce if he would be running if Donald Trump wasn't running. Did Donald Trump's decision to run affect yours? Would you be running if he wasn't? Yeah, I think I still would be running if he wasn't. Flash then seven months later, back in December, and at a fundraiser, the president said, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running. Now, you know, the campaign says don't make a big deal about that, but it's very clear that so much of what is motivating President Biden for a re-election run is the threat of Donald Trump. Democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot. And so for the campaign, this is the matchup that they wanted because, one, they know they've already beaten him. And two, when you are an incumbent who has poll numbers like Joe Biden right now, hovering at best in the upper 30s for a job approval rating, the best option you can probably have for a reelection battle is to make it a choice between you and another guy who is so well known to Americans and so polarizing. So 
they know that they can very deeply demonize a candidate like Donald Trump because Americans know him so well. The Biden campaign wants him to be getting attention. They want people to hear what Donald Trump is saying. And if they're not hearing it directly from Donald Trump, they're going to tell people what he is saying. The reason their fundamental right has been stripped away is Donald Trump. And because of Donald Trump, doctors are fleeing their home states, setting up practices in other states. Whether it's the president talking about how uh, Donald Trump is bragging about overturning Roe versus Wade and being proud of his Supreme Court justices for doing that, they want that in Americans' heads now over the next 10 months. So what does the Biden campaign see as the big issues, though? Abortion rights? He's going to be pressing that. What's his strategy here? Abortion is going to be very big because think about who that matters to. When you look at some of the polls over the last year and a half since the Dobbs decision, you know, the special elections, the midterm elections, those off-year races, women, young voters were coming out and voting on that issue. Those are groups that the president will need to win re-election. So you're going to hear them talking about that a lot over the next 10 months. The vice president this week launched a reproductive freedom tour that's going to take her all across the country, hearing stories, and also really launching broadsides against Donald Trump. Proud that doctors could be thrown in prison for caring for their patients, that young women today have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers? How dare he? So that's something that they feel they have traction on. And it's something that is, in their view, very black and white about what they want to do and what Donald Trump did and could do with the second term. Prescription drug costs. These are things that matter so much to people. You shouldn't pay the highest price in the world for drugs that your tax dollars have already helped create. They want to talk about what they've done to bring down the cost of insulin, bring down the cost of drugs for seniors, uh, price negotiation through Medicare, stuff that actually has real impact on people's wallets that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily get credit for right now. Uh, Also this week, uh, the White House announced that there was a record-breaking 21.3 million people who had signed up for health care coverage through the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, during the last open enrollment period. And the White House was touting that yesterday, saying it's a big deal. People are paying less for their coverage. They also will say, look, former President Trump's out there on the campaign trail, even just last week, saying he wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. He's still calling it a catastrophe. So that's another contrast that they want to make on these issues that they say really matter to people when they're sitting around their kitchen table. And President Biden also getting the union vote yesterday, the United Auto Workers endorsing him. How big of a deal is that? That's not new for him. It's not. You know, this is a group that has supported him before. This is an endorsement that the campaign has been hoping for and angling for. Uh, He is a big supporter of the UAW. Of course, remember last year he appeared on the picket line, uh, made that stop with striking auto workers in Michigan. And he told them after the labor dispute was resolved that he hoped that they remembered that. He hoped that they remembered his support come election season. And they did. So if our endorsements must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it. And it was a very lively endorsement from the UAW president, Sean Fain, uh, who said, you know, there's a contrast in this election, that there's a big difference between the two candidates right now. Donald Trump is a scab. It's not 
that everybody in the UAW is going to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, that's not how union endorsements work. But, you know, a sizable portion will if Sean Fain is saying, like, you know, do this, but also getting them out to vote, really motivating them to go and cast a ballot. The other thing, too, Anne, is just the organizing, like what they can do um, in terms of on the groundwork, getting out a message in a place like Michigan. That was important last summer when the president got the AFL-CIO endorsement, too, and it's, you know, 10, 12 million union workers that were a part of that. It tapped into something that gives the campaign a little something on the side that they don't have to do because those unions can go out and do some of that on the ground work and organizing for them. So, Karen, what would you say is is the biggest challenge then going forward? I mean, he's you mentioned his lower poll numbers. Uh, how does he overcome that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the polls right now. It, it's a really close race, and 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 you look at some state polls in the key battleground states, and the president's trailing. They have a lot of work to do. They have to convince Americans that the economy is in good shape. You know, there are certain indicators that say it is, but people aren't feeling that right now. And that's such an important thing in an election year. If people aren't feeling it, that could drive their vote. Uh, The campaign said this week that, you know, they're going to be very focused on presenting the choice between President Biden and Donald Trump, but they know that they're going to have to work very hard. And in fact, one of their top campaign officials said they're running like they're behind, which they are if you look at some of these polls. Uh, But that's certainly the way that they're going to approach this right now, because it is going to be a very tight race. That's ABC's Karen Travers. Karen, thanks so much. Thanks, Anne. Next up on Start Here, missiles keep flying in the Red Sea. So what's the plan? More after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. By now, you may have picked up on a pattern in the Middle East. Iranian-backed militants in Yemen, known as the Houthis, launch missiles and rockets at commercial ships in the Red Sea, some of them with U.S. flags. Then the U.S. strikes back. In one case, U.S. and British fighter jets destroyed an underground bunker and other sites, which U.S. officials celebrated as a major success. Initial reports from the Pentagon indicate that all the targets were hit and that they will help further degrade Houthi offensive capabilities. But apparently the Houthis didn't get the message because yesterday they launched yet another attack on a U.S. flagged ship. To understand what is going on here and why this matters, let's bring in ABC senior Pentagon reporter Louis Martinez. Louis, yet another Houthi attack yesterday on a U.S. ship. What was the response at the Pentagon? Well, and the response here was once again that we can shoot down anything you send their way. And that's exactly what happened. This was an American destroyer that happened to be very close 
to where this container ship was, and it brought down two of those three missiles that were inbound for the container ship. Now, that third missile landed in the ocean, so it was a harmless uh, situation. Um, but one thing that we need to point out is that this was the first attack of this kind in more than five days. So what we had seen prior to that was, was back and forth where the United States was carrying out these preemptive airstrikes, and then the Houthis would launch again, and then back and forth. And now, all of a sudden, we had this five-day gap, and you have to wonder, okay, what's going on here? Does that mean that those preemptive strikes, when those missiles were being targeted right there on their launchers, does that mean that the United States exactly did what it's wanted, which is essentially to preempt any strikes from taking place? Does it mean that potentially the Houthis are getting the message? That remains to be seen. Um, But one of the things that we've constantly heard from U.S. officials is that the United States retaliatory strikes, again with our partners, was all intended to essentially degrade the Houthis' capability to do these strikes. They have stockpiles uh, of advanced weapons provided to them in many cases or enabled uh, to them in many cases by Iran, and we are taking down, taking out uh, these stockpiles. So now we've got this five-day gap, This, of course, this one incident. Now the big question is what happens next? Do the Houthis resume their daily strikes or do they step back? Is the Pentagon being forthcoming on any U.S. intelligence estimate on the Houthis' ability to keep striking? I mean, are we just going to keep doing this? Well, I think the U.S. presence is not going to go away anytime soon, and the U.S. ships are going to stay there, the capability is going to stay there, and it's a good thing because if you need to restore essentially confidence in the shipping lanes, they need to stay there because the shipping companies need to know that they don't have to go all the way around South Africa in order to make it back to Europe, and so I think the U.S. presence is going to be there for quite some time. Now, does that mean that the Houthis will get the message? It's all a matter of perception. Obviously, uh, underscores that the Houthis uh, still in tend to conduct these attacks, which means we're obviously still going to have to do what we have to have to do to, to protect that shipping. I think that these U.S. strikes, essentially what they have done, though, is raise the profile that the United States and its allies are committed to ensuring that those shipping lanes remain open. Well, and my understanding is that Iran is bankrolling all of these attacks. They're behind all of these proxy militant groups. They have deep pockets. So ABC News got the opportunity to ask Iran's foreign minister about this, and he tied it directly to U.S. support for Israel and the war in Gaza. Do U.S. officials see it that way? Do they see these two events being linked? You know, and that's the really big question here because the Iranians have been very public. Those, they're, uh, the Houthis have been very public. Those Iraqi militias have been very public. That this is all directly linked to what's going on between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. The genocide against Gaza should be stopped. And if it is stopped, then the security will be restored in the Red Sea. This is what the Yemenis have told us. United States officials do not see that at all. They've been adamant that this has nothing to do uh, with that situation. And I think that's a little bit of them trying to contain the situation, right? Because I think they really uh, know that there is a risk that if especially... uh, countries like Iran, if they make linkages to what's going on there with Israel, that that could broaden the conflict. So the language that they use is always that, nope, this is very different from what's going on in Gaza. The best solution to this situation not escalating is for the Houthis to stop these attacks. 
They point out that these are terrorist attacks being carried out against shipping in, in the Red Sea. They point out that the Iraqi militias have been a constant threat to U.S. forces inside of Iraq and Syria when they target these U.S. bases. But the reality is, if you look back at the number of attacks that have occurred since mid-October, shortly after Israel went into Gaza, these numbers have just spiked through the roof. It is highly possible that the war can spill over and to the other parts of the region. It is very likely that it will widen. So the question really is, Is it really intended to be something like that? Is it truly support for what's going on with Hamas? Or is it more just an opportunity for them to create um, what the United States calls malign activity in the Middle East? And I think it's, that's why it's important to hear exactly what the Iranian viewpoint is. But we always have to take it with a grain of salt because you never really know exactly what the Iranian intentions truly are, especially in a situation like this. Well, and I want to just take a big step back. You know, why does all of this matter? It just seems like the Middle East right now is a tinderbox and that the U.S. is trying to handle this very delicately. Is the concern that this will escalate? I think the concern of escalation is everywhere. I think everybody's being realistic that when you're seeing missiles flying everywhere in the Middle East right now, there have been at least 10 retaliatory strikes against the Houthis and the now the Iraqi forces. I mean, that's throughout the Middle East. That's showing U.S. firepower at its best. But it's also showing you that there's a lot going on over there, and it's a very risky situation. So I think I know that national security experts, national security um, professionals are looking at what's going on over there right now with concern, but they also have to project this really strong image, the fact that the United States is there and that it can ensure security. And I think that's the message that they're trying to convey. Well, and I think a lot of Americans here, okay, Yemeni rebels, Houthis, who are they? they? They don't stand a chance against the U.S. military. But when you know that they're being bankrolled by Iran and that Iran is also seeking a nuclear weapon, I think it just becomes a very different story. Um, thanks for being with us. Louis Martinez at the Pentagon. Thanks, Ed. Overnight, researchers published promising new figures that could give hope to millions of families with children who are born deaf. Researchers from Mass General Hospital in Boston and China's Fudan University say they've found a new way to use gene therapy to restore hearing to several children enrolled in an early clinical trial. In a video from one of the patients, a mother is teaching her toddler to say mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa. Remember, this child was born deaf. And this was huge news because until now, there had never been a surgical way to correct an inner ear that isn't functioning right. So to catch us up on this development, let's bring in ABC's Sony Salzman, who helps to lead our medical unit. Sony, let's just start with what is gene therapy? Do you actually change your DNA? Yeah, and it is exactly that. Gene therapy is a relatively new type of therapy where scientists have found a way to go in and literally change a person's DNA. So far... This has been used primarily for diseases that are genetic diseases. There are FDA-approved gene therapies for a rare inherited form of blindness, for example, and recently there were two major approvals for sickle cell disease, which is caused by genetic mutations. So in this particular case for hearing loss, this news that we're hearing from overnight, what scientists have done is they've gone in and they've delivered an injection into the inner ear of children with a heritable form of hearing loss, so a type of hearing loss that is caused by a faulty gene or mutations to a specific gene. And what the study showed is that in these six 
Chinese children that were given this treatment, five of them had their hearing restored. And so far, the safety profile seems to look good, the scientists say. Well, and I saw some reporting last fall at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. There was an 11-year-old boy who actually was treated with this. Um, it, it just seems like we're on the cusp of just, you know, a very big leap in science here to be able to treat this. How big of a deal is this? You know, this is a really big deal, and it's part of a kind of growing scientific success story of gene therapy. Now, when it comes to this hearing therapy, there are several groups across the world that have been working on this for months. And we're just now starting to learn some of these very promising but very preliminary results. Now, the 11-year-old boy you mentioned, he had never been hearing before. He was treated here in the U.S. at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, actually flown in for this treatment with his parent. This will be where the, the gene therapy drug will go into that tubing there. And this boy had severe hearing loss, deaf in both ears, was given this injection in the inner ear. Success. And then after the injection, uh, the researchers performed hearing tests and the boy was able to hear. Yes, that's if you heard that, told me yes. Pretty cool. According to the accounts that we have, has been able to kind of have a lot of hearing restored. And in fact, anecdotally, when these children have been treated, much of the reporting afterwards suggests that they feel that the world is almost too noisy. It takes a little while for them to get used to this new hearing that they have after these treatments. Well, in within the deaf community, we have heard, uh, you know, and advocates for people with disabilities saying that deafness isn't necessarily something that needs to be cured. Is that something that uh, you've heard in reaction to this therapy? I think that's a really interesting point to bring up in terms of gene therapy in general. So there are many diseases for which people have grown up with them. You know, they, they were born with them as children, everything from autism to deafness. And by the time they reach adulthood, these, you know, they become part of the person's identity. In the deaf community in particular, folks have their own language, American Sign Language, and they have a strong culture around their deafness. And some people don't want to give that up. If you gave them a choice, do you would you want to be treated for your deafness? Many people would say no. So I think that what gene therapy does is it raises a lot of these really interesting kind of ethical and societal questions about, you know, whether or not folks should be treated. Now, I, what a lot of scientists will tell you is that they want to pursue this so that people have options. I think it's it's wonderful that folks have built such a rich culture and community. And I think that some people will make the choice and some people won't make the choice. But the point is, is that hopefully, if this research continues to progress, some families and patients will have that choice. And I know you've covered a lot of these therapies in the past. And, you know, I want to get a reality check here. How soon before you think the FDA could approve something like this? Is it months? Is it years? That's right. It's months or years, right? So the FDA, rightfully so, is very cautious. And they're particularly cautious around gene therapy because this is a relatively new science. And with gene therapy in particular, there is a high risk of what scientists call off-target effects. If you change someone's genetics, you hope that you're making a very tight, targeted change that will only impact the thing that you want. But there is this risk that there could be unintended consequences. And so that's why you know, we have these rigorous clinical trials. 
these re- results that we're talking about now, and these are really early data, but we're going to need a lot more data before the FDA feels comfortable. A lot more people treated and a lot more time so that we know that months and years after their treatment, they're still doing okay. There's no new illness that crops up. And then the FDA will weigh all of that evidence, decide if the benefits outweigh the risks, and you know, one day in the future make their approval decision. That said, in the broad category of gene therapy, this is seen as another really exciting and positive development, showing that this type of therapy really can work and correct some of these genetic illnesses. That's fascinating stuff. ABC's Sony Salzman. Sony, thanks for being with us. Of course. Thank you, Anne. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the Brits reach a boiling point after Americans start talking about tea again. One last thing is next. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. It's been more than 250 years since American revolutionaries dumped tea in the Boston Harbor, angering the Brits. Well, this week, another stir. A U.S. scientist suggesting that the perfect cup of tea needs just a pinch of salt. Michelle Francel is a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, and she's written a book called Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea. According to the book's description, Francel explores the chemistry behind different styles of tea and tackles, quote, the age-old question of when or even whether to add milk. And she cites her chemistry background on how to brew a better cup, including adding a touch of salt so that the tea is not so bitter. Well, apparently, the lesson in how to be less bitter didn't sit well with many Brits on social media who said the idea was simply appalling. Several posts invoked the 1773 Boston Tea Party, insisting that it was high time Americans stopped ruining a good cup of tea with salt water. In an interview with Sky News, Francel said she did her homework reading over 500 pages of research for her book. It turns out that this is a long-standing tradition. Um, There is evidence in 8th century manuscripts from China about adding salt to tea. But there's recent research that shows that the sodium ions, they block the bitter receptors, so you can sort of tell your tongue not to taste the bitter. At one point, the U.S. Embassy in London jumped in to have fun with the spat, issuing a statement noting that adding salt to Britain's national drink is in fact not U.S. official policy. The embassy called on everyone to, quote, unite in steeped solidarity and that when it came to tea, we stand as one. As for Francel, she told reporters she didn't mean to stir up controversy. On social media, she celebrated the U.S. Embassy statement, declaring, my book has diplomatic implications. I think it's a good example of a tempest in a teapot. 
think I'm going to side with my fellow Americans on this. If for no other reason than American chocolate is so much better than British chocolate. I don't know what happened after the American Revolution, but there were some serious gains on the chocolate front. For more on these stories, visit abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Ann Flaherty, in for Brad Milkey. Have a great day. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.